Good morning and welcome to Redemption Parker Online. I'm so excited that this is perhaps the last online service that we do, uh, but we don't know. We'll hold these things with an open hand. I wish I could be preaching with you in live and in person this morning, uh, and I look forward to next week. But but this morning, I'm pumped for what, what God has for you and for me. I'm, I've been encouraged. I've been challenged. I've been rebuked by this passage. Uh, I've had to repent, and I'm just praying that the Lord would do uh, exceedingly more in me and in you as a result of our time together in the Word this morning. So if you have your Bible, you can begin to work your way to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9. The very end, we'll be at the, there in chapter 10. We're continuing in our series on the King and the Kingdom through the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to pray for us and then just jump right into it. So Father, we do come before you now in the name of your Son, Jesus, and in the power of your Holy Spirit, asking for you to do the work that only you can do, Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. We don't want to be the same. We don't want to be going through the motions. We want to hear from you, be changed by you, uh, be loved by you, and be filled with your love. And so we ask that you do that in us and through us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, one of the reasons I'm excited is that uh, in this passage, uh, I've kind of made some connections and uh, I figured out a secret. I figured out the secret that if, if what you want is a nice and a safe and a comfortable kind of Christianity and, and throw in the American dream on top of that, then, then, then you can find out how to do that in this passage. You don't have to be challenged. You don't have to uh, do the difficult bits. You don't have to uh, go anywhere. You don't have to sacrifice anything. You can just be safe and comfortable. And for the most part, because of the time and place that we live, you could be healthy and, and you could be wealthy. Some of you are like, hey, honey, this, this is it. This is it. This is what we've been waiting for. Get your notebook out. This is what we were hoping for. <laughs> But probably most of you are like, it's a trap. Well, not necessarily. In fact, you can really find out how to have that kind of Christianity in this passage. But, but, I, I think there's a problem. There's a, a problem uh, in, in our thinking uh, when we think about the kingdom and, and the gospel. It's kind of been whittled down to something that it's not. The, the best uh, illustration, the way that I can illustrate this is from uh, a, a movie, deeply theological. Uh, came out in the year I was born. Maybe you haven't seen it. It's called Monty Python and the Holy Grail, The Search for the Holy Grail. I've shared this illustration before, but uh, nevertheless, I think it captures what I'm getting at here. So in this movie, uh, King Arthur is traveling with his knights and he's searching for the Holy Grail. And as they travel along, uh, they come towards the end of the movie and they've got a great chasm to cross. And at the front of the chasm is this kind of gatekeeper. And as Arthur and three of his knights get to the gatekeeper, the gatekeeper says, stop. And it says, if you want to cross, you each have to answer three questions. Now, if you get them all right, you can pass on through. But if you get them wrong, you'll be cast into the abyss. So the stakes are kind of high, right? 
So, so the first night goes forward, and uh, he's kind of nervous. He, he's kind of scared, doesn't know what to expect. And so the, the gatekeeper asks him, uh, state your name, and he does. State your quest, and he does. And then he asks him, what's your favorite color? He's like, oh, that's easy. It's red. And he's like, oh, go right ahead. And so the guy walks on across the chasm. Now the next guy's coming in. Now he's feeling confident. He's like, well, that was easy. And so a guy says, state your name. And he does. And state your quest. And he does. And then he asks him, what's the capital of Assyria? He said, I don't know. And ah, he's cast into the abyss. Now the third guy, man, he's terrified. He doesn't know what to expect. His knees are knocking. His teeth are chattering. And the guy asks him, state your name. And, and he does. And he states your quest. And he does. And then he says, uh, what's your favorite color? But this guy's so nervous. He says, uh, red. No, no, blue. And ah, he's cast into the abyss. Finally, Arthur comes up. And the gatekeeper says, state your name. He says, I'm King Arthur, King of the Britons. And state your quest. I search the Holy Grail. And then he's asked him this question that's kind of a running joke throughout the movie. He says, what's the airspeed velocity of a coconut-laden swallow? And Arthur's answer is also kind of a running gag throughout the movie. He says, well, that depends. Are we talking about an African swallow or a European swallow? The gatekeeper says, well, I don't know that. And ah, the gatekeeper's cast into the abyss and Arthur goes on through. You're like, what in the world does that have to do with the gospel? It's simply this. For millions of Christians and thousands of churches, we've boiled down the gospel to what are the bare entrance, bare entrance, bare minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven when I die. What are the bare minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven when I die? And for, for, for many, that's all Christianity is. What's, what's the golden ticket of Willy Wonka that I can, that I can have at the gate and they got to let me in? That's not the gospel. And I so appreciate a kind of a, a pushback in that in some realm in the last 10, 15 years uh, in, in what we'll call gospel-centered churches. We want to be a gospel-centered church that plants gospel-centered churches. But even in our gospel-centered churches where we try to bring the gospel back to the center, I think even there we can make the same mistake. Even there we can uh, so emphasize the central tenet of the gospel that we are saved by grace through faith. The doctrine of justification. And I'm going to preach that every week. And every week we're going to come back to that because Every week we are tempted to trust in ourselves or trust in something else. And so the doctrine of justification is central, but it's not the only thing in the gospel. It might be the hub, but the gospel has spokes that go out in a million different directions. And if we're not careful, we can boil down the gospel to the bare, bare minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven when we die. And we point, and I point to the, the, the key verses like Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We love those verses. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's the gift of God, not, not a result of works. But we can forget that Paul did not stop there. He put in verse 10 for a reason. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The gospel rescues us, redeems us, but it should also send us. So we've been uh, going through the gospel of Matthew and we've been following the king as he points us to the kingdom. And throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus has this calling. Seven times, in fact, we read him saying this. He says, follow me. Central to being a disciple of the king is to follow him. That means to uh, act like him. That means to uh, love what he loves, to think what he thinks as far as we are able, to, to be filled with his compassion, to, to do the works that he does in, a, in, in all the ways to follow him. That's what we're called to. In fact, let me just read to you uh, the seven verses without commentary uh, in Matthew's gospel uh, where he says this. Matthew 4.19, he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Matthew 8.22, Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Matthew 9.9, as Jesus passed from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Matthew 10.38, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 19, 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We are called to follow him. And so in this passage that we're going to look at, it's going to be another invitation to follow him, but not in the way that you might think. So, so again, we've been going through this uh, gospel. And in chapters 8 and 9, we, we know that Jesus has been putting on display that he has all power and all authority. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And because he has all power and authority, he does whatever he wants. There's no sickness. There's no death. There's no demon. There, there's no storm. There's no obstacle that can overcome Jesus and his mission. And so at the end of chapter 9, in verse, starting in verse 35, uh, Matthew kind of gives us a summary of that and shows us what he's been doing. And again, as, as we begin to point, put these pieces together, you're, you're going to have a choice. You can either go with the safe, the comfortable, the, the kind of, I just uh, want the bare minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven when I die Christianity. Or you can go to something so much more. And you were made for this. But you have to decide. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. So this is a summary of what Jesus is doing. He has been going through all, notice it says all the cities and villages. There, there must have been at this time, uh, historians tell us about 
Three million people in towns and cities and villages that, that Jesus was just going to all of them. And he was, we've seen it. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He's feeding the, the multitudes. He, he is just working hard. But, but, but Matthew clarifies exactly his mission. He's teaching about the kingdom in the synagogues. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, number two. And then he is healing every disease and every affliction. So teaching preaching the gospel and healing. That's what Jesus was doing. Verse 36, when Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. He saw the crowds. He had compassion for them. Jesus is going to go on in this chapter and show us that, that God is not limited in any way in his knowledge of you and me. He knows the number of hairs on our head. But not only that, he has eyes for the desperate spiritual and physical needs of this world. Eyes far beyond what we can see. Jesus sees the crowds and says he had compassion on them. Why? Why did Jesus have compassion for them? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed and helpless. Now, on one level... This crowd is like you and me. They're harassed and helpless. And part of their harassment and helplessness is their own doing. Uh, It's their own sinfulness. It's their own part in a broken world. It's their own rebellion against the king that has caused the breakdown that has caused this helplessness. And so Jesus could have come with all power and authority as the king who has been offended by them and rightfully exercised his just wrath against sinful humanity. But that's not what the text says. He had compassion. He had compassion. Now that word is so important. Let me ask you this. Do you think you're a compassionate person? On a scale of one to 10, just in your head, what would you give yourself on a compassion scale? I'm compassionate. Now be careful. I'm not talking empathy. I'm talking compassion. The reason there's a difference is because it's a very important difference. The word compassion comes from the Latin word to mean co-suffering. Co-suffering. In the Greek here, it doesn't mean his heart was broken. That's how we might say it. It literally refers to his bowels. It's like he got punched in the gut. He is is physically and spiritually, mentally, whatever, he is suffering with the people as he sees them suffering. He has compassion, co-passion with them. D.A. Carson, one of the greatest Scholars of the New Testament alive today, he put it this way with this Greek word, compassion. He says, it's a strong word for an emotional response. Listen to this, which always results in caring action. A strong word for an emotional response, which always results in caring action. So, The only way that you can say you have compassion is that when you see a need, desperate physical or spiritual need, and it so stirs you to move you to action. So compassion is love in action. So again, I would ask, are we a compassionate people? 
does it actually stir us? When Jesus sees the crowd, it, he gets punched in the gut and he has compassion. And, and it was his compassion that, that caused him to leave his throne in glory in heaven and come on and put on flesh and, and enter into our limitations and enter into our suffering. He will literally suffer for us because of his compassion. So what does he do? If this is where he's at now in this moment, what does he do? Verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, what does he do? He turns to his disciples, the ones he's invited to follow me. This is what Jesus does. This is how his compassion moves him in this moment. He turns to his disciples. What does he say? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, there are two biblical imageries that that should be provoked in our mind in this moment. On the one hand, it's a positive image. Jesus looks out and he says, it's like the harvest is is ripe and it's ready to be brought in. And so so, uh, we we can bring it in and there'll be a great celebration. That's that's usually how we uh, come to this text and, and interact with it. But that's only one of the biblical metaphors. If you look up the word harvest in the Bible and see how it is used as a metaphor, most often it's a picture of coming Destruction, the righteous wrath of God against sinful humanity. You hear what Jesus is saying? Time is running out. The end is coming. And and there is a mass of humanity with physical and spiritual needs that are desperate. And if if something isn't done, they're going to be lost forever. Church, this should begin to stir our compassion. But we know compassion is costly. It always moves us to action, but, but compassion is costly. There's a term that, 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 that's come up about called compassion fatigue, right? We are finite. We're limited. We, we experience compassion fatigue quickly. Let me just go through a quick list. For example, you know that, that there is an estimate about 27 million people in slavery today. Uh, we, we can't even fathom what that means. 27 million image bearers in slavery today. That should cause something in us to stir. Half of the world's population lives on less than $2 a day. In One day, 24,000 children under the age of five today will die from preventable causes. In the time that we gather for worship, a thousand will die from preventable causes in our world today. So very, very quickly, we can turn on the news. We can can see what's going on even this week and be overwhelmed. Lord, it's too much. It's too much. So, so what can we do? How can we possibly make a dent on the billions of people created in God's image that have no access to the gospel? What can we do, Lord? I'm glad you asked. Because Jesus turns to his disciples. This is the harvest is plentiful. Labors are few. Verse 38. Therefore, okay, what are we going to do, Lord? What are we going to do? Therefore, 
pray earnestly. What? Yeah. the, the, The needs are so extreme, so overwhelming. The first thing that you must do, that I must do, is is develop a heart for earnest, desperate, uh, through tears kind of prayer. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. To what? To send out laborers into the harvest. Pray desperately. Get on your face. Beg the Lord. I love that it starts in prayer. Because that's something all of us can do. It says, the, the, the problem of 2 billion people that don't have access to the gospel, pray. The problem with women being trafficked in our world and young girls and young boys being trafficked as sex slaves, what can you do? Pray. The problem of, of, of the foster care system and orphans in our world, what can you do? Well, you start by praying. All of us can do that. You can do that. But let me just warn you. Prayer is dangerous. Oh, 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 it's far, far, far more powerful than we could think or imagine. But remember how Jesus taught us how to pray? <coughs> Excuse me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But then what? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Make up there come down here. Make your rule and your kind reign happen in my life, in my family, in my city, in in my country, in this world. Your will be done. That is a dangerous prayer to pray. Do Do you ever think how dangerous that is? Your will be done, Lord. Now you start to see something else is happening here. When we pray, Our capacity to love, our capacity for compassion, our capacity begins to expand because the Spirit of God meets us in our prayers and He stretches us and makes us more like Jesus. So it makes sense that Jesus would be moved with compassion to see the crowd, to turn to His disciples, and He would say, pray desperately, pray fervently. It's a dangerous prayer. It's a dangerous prayer. And yet this is what he invites us to. But, but then let's go on and let's see what happens. And he called to him his 12 disciples. Notice he's turned to his disciples out of his compassion. He invites them to pray. Now he calls his disciples, uh, continue on, his 12 disciples, and gave them authority. He, he equips and empowers his disciples for mission. Drop down to verse 5. These 12, these same guys that when Jesus was moved to compassion, that turns to and he says, pray earnestly. Those same 12, he turns to and he says, and it says, these 12, Jesus sent out. Jesus sent out on mission. See, prayer is dangerous because so often the way that we get a heart for the things of God, the way that we get a calling for the things of God starts with, with prayer. In fact, I don't know any other way that it can start. It, it starts with prayer. Like it, someone comes to me and says, well, Mark, I'm just not called to that. Now, granted, we aren't all called to everything. We, we get that. We're finite. We're limited. But so often, People's excuse for not being called to this or that thing of God 
It just comes from their own mind, their own imagination. Yes, you will not be called if you never pray fervently about something. So there's the secret. You don't want to be called to, to missions. You don't want to be called to serve the poor. You don't want to be called to adoption or foster care. Easy. Don't pray about it. Don't pray about it because prayer is dangerous. It's going to begin to shape your heart more like the heart of Jesus. And that's really dangerous. We'll see that next week. If that's what you want. Prayer moves. I was thinking about uh, my friend. I work for an organization called Pioneers International. We send missionaries. We send laborers out to the harvest field. Uh, We have about 4,000 workers worldwide right now to the least reached, unreached, hardest to reach people groups across the planet. We're trying to finish the mission. And we're not actually that old as a mission organization. We're not that old. Started in 1970s by a guy named Ted Fletcher. Ted was a lot like you guys, a lot like me. He, He was a businessman in his mid to late 40s. When he began to read these words and God uh, just brought him first to a place of prayer. He began to pray. And, and, and God began to move. Began to move in him and through him and to other people around him. So that he birthed this mission agency called Pioneers International. I have a friend that uh, about 25 years ago. He's been with Pioneers this long. 25 years ago he had an opportunity before Ted passed away. To talk with him. And Ted asked him, hey, son, do you ever uh, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll send out workers into the harvest field? My friend says he felt really proud in that moment because that morning he actually had prayed this prayer. He actually did get on his face and pray that, which makes sense. He's at the mission agency. He's applying to become a missionary. And so he's praying this. And so he says, yeah, I do pray that. And then he turned the question back on Ted and he says, what about you? Do, do you? do you pray that prayer? And he looked at him and he said, Son, I pray that prayer every single day of my life. Is there any wonder why he would be part of a mission that is now reaching all around the world? Because prayer moves. It changes us. It challenges us. But those that pray are most often are those that are called. Those that are called are then equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Those that are equipped and empowered are sent. It's a discipleship cycle. And when we're at the beginning of it, it's scary. Like, I don't think I can do that. I don't know. But, but God begins to work that cycle. We pray. We're called. We're empowered. We're equipped. We're sent. God can and wants to do that through you in a million different ways through our church and through the church in this city. It is absolutely ridiculous that there is foster care and adoption needs in our city when we have more churches than the needs in our city for that. Oh, that we would listen to the Holy Spirit and we would not quench the Spirit, but we would pray desperately for the things that break God's heart. That's my heart. That's my prayer. So, so what about you? What, what is your prayer these days? What if God answered all of your prayers right now? Would the world be changed? I hope so. I'll be honest with you. Be transparent with you just for a moment. There are lots of things that I don't pray about because I'm afraid. I'll then get called. I'll then get equipped and I'll get sent. That's just being selfish. 
from an earthly perspective, I like my comfort. I like kind of having my life under control. I like having my nice little family where we do our thing. I like that. I'm honest. And that makes sense from an earthly perspective. But from an eternal perspective, man, that's insanity. That I wouldn't pray and, and beg the Lord of the harvest to send out workers in the harvest because he might call me. That's insanity. We are called to, to be changed forever into the image of Christ. That is what will matter most a hundred years from now for every one of us who hears this message. Because that is eternal. And so let's not be insane. Yes, you can choose the easy life. But honestly, is that what you want? Is that what we want as a church? Do we really want to just be a church that goes through the motion, checks the boxes, maybe has some good worship, checks the gospel-centered box, and then just kind of prays small, shallow prayers? We can be that kind of church, but honestly, let's, let's be honest with each other enough to just say, hey, there's better things we can do with our Sunday. We live in Colorado. Like we, we can do something better. Rather than living shallow Christian lives, let's just enjoy this world like, like the rest of our neighbors and friends. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit of God and there's going to be His, His movement in your soul, even right now, that says, man, you want more than that. You were made for more than that. As a church, God is calling us to more than that. He's first calling us to prayer, though. And so you don't have to commit to to going overseas as a missionary. You don't have to commit to adoption. You don't have to commit to to helping the homeless population in in our city right now. You don't have to commit to any of that. I'm just saying, let's obey Jesus' instruction. Let's get on our face before God and pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll send out workers into his harvest field. And then let's see. Let's see five years, 10 years, 20, 30 years from now how God will answer those prayers. Church, please, let's be that kind of church. Let's get on our face. Let's not go through the motion anymore. To that end, let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we confess and acknowledge that this is far beyond our ability to comprehend or understand. So we need that from you. I confess personally that I'm scared to pray some of these prayers, Uh, but that's okay. You can work with that. Pray that you'd work with us. Each one of us, every believer in Christ that is hearing my message, Lord, call us to prayer in in just personal, private ways and, and together as a church. Lord, use our lives. Call us to pray. And then over time, would you just call us to yourself, call us to your mission, call us and equip us with your spirit and send us, Lord, that we might live lives that at the end of the day, we enter into eternity and you say, well done, good and faithful servants. That's what we want most, even though we're afraid. So do that work in us today, tonight, this week, this month, this year, and always. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.